voyant par chez nous, se sont fait rendez-vous. Ils sont réunis ensemble pour un voyage à entreprendre. Oh oui donc, faites vos sacs pour partir pour le Klondike. Quand le train est arrivé, le conducteur est débarqué. Welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In this episode, we'll be beginning our look at Jack London, the original J-Lo's um, novel, White Fang. But there was life abroad in the land in defiant. Down in the frozen waterways toiled a string of wolfish dogs. Their bristling fur was rimmed with frost. Their breath froze in the air as it left their mouths, spouting forth in spumes of vapor that settled upon the hair of their bodies and formed into crystals of frost. Leather harness was on the dogs, and leather traces attached them to a sled which dragged along behind. The sled was without runners. It was made of a stout birch bark, and its full surface rested on the snow. The front end of the sled was turned up like a scroll in order to force down and under the bore of soft snow that surged like a wave before it. On the sled, securely lashed was a long and narrow oblong box. There were other things on the sled, blankets and axe and coffee pot and frying pan, but prominent, occupying most of the space, was the long and narrow oblong box. In advance of the dogs on wide snowshoes toiled a man. At the rear of the sled toiled a second man. On the sled... In the box lay a third man whose toil was over, a man whom the wild had conquered and beaten down until he would never more struggle again. It was not the way of the wild to like movement. Life is an offense to it, for life is movement, and the wild aims always to destroy movement. It freezes the water to prevent it from running into the sea. It drives the sap out of the trees till they're frozen to the mighty hearts, and most ferociously and terribly of all does the wild harry and crush into submission man man who is the most restless of life ever in revolt against the dictum of all movements must in the end come to a cessation of movement and with that we have uh, the opening of of white fang so as you see in a novel about dogs uh, ostensibly about wolves and dogs we have a story about three men well two are still alive facing the wild and facing its its brutality and its honesty on the surface white fang is the opposite story of the call of the wild white fang considered the domestication of a dog um, and his acceptance to the human world the call of the wild talked about a domestic dog who through facing the the gold rush and facing the brutality of humans and facing violence becomes a wolf. Although being an opposite narrative in this way, White Fang reinforces many of the themes of the earlier work. The novel is extremely violent, um, and I think for this series we can focus on the causes of violence in the novel. The novel is written in four, five parts. Right? And the first part is about... is essentially from the human's point of view, but it's about uh, a wolf pack and a group of humans, a small group of humans facing hunger and scarcity. The second part is about a wolf pack and, and the cycle of life. The third part is, 
is about the introduction of these wolves to human society. Part four continues the introduction of, of this wolf, White Fang, to, to human life, facing violence, systematized and daily violence. And then the final part is about the taming of, of White Fang and the introduction to, to America. So, but in each of these sections, violence is at the core of it, right? Even in the last section, there, there's violence under the surface. So in every section, we have this violence, often associated either with scarcity. In nature, it's, it's scarcity and violence that are connected again and again. Hunger, the need for food, the kind of the struggle for survival in nature. But in, with men, with human beings, when our when our character, these wolves inter encounter humans, there's still violence, but it's not a violence rooted always in scarcity. A few times it is, but often it's it's a much more arbitrary and and pointless violence or violence for labor and profit. In that sense, especially the later parts of the novel read very much like the Call of the Wild, which is about how, you know, almost as I said in the last episode. In Call of the Wild, nature's bad and violent, but humanity's even worse. Right? I think you see the same sort of thing in, in White Fang. The novel can also be looked at as kind of a metaphor for someone kind of growing up from the street to kind of the middle class. This is the path that, that sort of Martin Eden takes. And you have a kind of this brutishness in Martin Eden, and think he's brawling, street fighting in his youth. Eventually he tries to work his way up into the bourgeoisie. Of course, London himself kind of went through this path of, you know, working on the streets, working as an oyster pirate, uh, working in different factories, a brawler, a fighter who eventually um, is tamed, so to speak, um, through literature and through the arts. Anyways, let's just jump into it. Uh, start with part one, the wild. The theme of the wild that I'd like to highlight is the relationship between violence and scarcity. The novel begins with humans facing off in a struggle for survival against a pack of wolves led by a red-furred quote-unquote she-wolf. The she-wolf we later learn is called Keech, and she was she's a half-dog, half-wolf that ran away from a group of Indian hunters. And over the over about a year's period, integrated herself into a wolf pack. Uh, her her knowledge of humans gives her advantages over over her fellow wolves and helps her keep the pack alive. She will be the future mother of White Fang. So at the start of the novel, there's you know White Fang isn't yet born. The wolves are violently attacking the party, killing their dogs one by one, and increasing and eventually threatening the lives of the men as well. One of the men as the opening quote suggested, was already dead, and he was a rich man. And so we get this brutal equality of the Yukon, right? The, the rich man, the man who's kind of there just for fun as a tourist almost, you know, they even ask, like, why does he come here if he's rich? We're desperate. We need money. But why does he come here for, if he's rich? Uh, but he dies nonetheless. Um, eventually, another one of them dies, uh, killed by the wolves, and the third survives. But these attacks by the wolves are driven by this intense hunger. We have descriptions in this section of, of how like the, 
you know, the belly of the dogs is up, up in their spinal cord. The spinal cord. It's that, that desperation. They're driven to almost madness out of hunger. This famine and these, these periods of starvation, um, both for animals and humans, are described as famines. You normally think of famines as an agricultural event, but um, it, it can be used to describe a lack of food for predators as well. So this famine forces the pack to cooperate. They set aside their internal grievances and work together in this very furious struggle for survival. So the, the scarcity doesn't lead to the breaking up of the pack and everyone going their own way. It actually leads to solidarity and cooperation. And actually when, they get, when the famine breaks, and this is in part two, the famine breaks, the pack breaks up. The humans have food and they have the dogs. And their struggle for survival is against this outside threat more than it is facing starvation. The, their struggle for, the struggle for survival of the wolves, though, demands that they take what the humans have. Now, we could read this perhaps as a core periphery of the global economy, right? That you have rich nations and poor nations. We have gated community nations and slum nations, right? And you know this increasing nativism we see in the in the west and in the industrial west is because there are many people who you know are desperate to take advantage of the prosperity in in the west and move in to to do that they're not violent predators of course but they are they're increasingly seen as a threat to the way of life of people in the in the global north Now, while the humans have what, while the humans have food, they're also in desperate circumstances because they lack the means to protect themselves, and they're also subject, increasingly, to the because of the loss of their wolves, to deprivation or want. It's a zero-sum game almost, in among these competitors. For both groups, scarcity is imposed by outside forces. Yet, in the struggle for survival, the desperate prey on the weak. Such as it is the life for many people. And such is the consequences of scarcity imposed by inequality. So that, that's my reading of part one of, of White Fang. So this first part is broken up into three short chapters. And let's just go, go in a little bit more detail. Um, the first chapter is called The Trail of Meat. And we meet two men, Henry and Bill, who are journeying in the Yukon and are in a relative tight spot. While they have food... Uh, one of their companions has died, and they're being attacked by dogs. At first, the dogs are just simply stealing the food. And the she-wolf, you know, kind of hid in with the other dogs and just would take food when it was handed out. But eventually, she, she starts releasing dogs and, 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 and killing them or leading them to the pack. So this is a challenge for them. Their dogs are being attacked, and one by one, you know, they're, they're losing these animals. And it's this pack is, of course, being apparently led by the she-wolf. And we're given this very stark picture of the misery of, of these gold miners. Quote, but at front and rear, unawed and indomitable, toiled the two men who were not yet dead. Their bodies were covered with fur and soft tan leather. Eyelashes and cheeks and lips were so coated with the crystals from the frost breath that their face was not discernible. This gave them the seeming of ghostly masks, undertakers in a spectral world, at the funerals for some ghost. But under it all they were men, penetrating the land of desolation and mockery and silence, puny adventurers bent on, bent on colossal adventure, 
pitting themselves against the might of the world as remote and alien and pulseless as the abyss of space. So the feeling we get in chapter one is just this desolation, emptiness, this utter inhospitability to life in, in the Yukon, right? Nothing grows, right? It's, it's, it's kill or be killed uh, sort of environment. Chapter two is called The She-Wolf. And in this chapter, the two men, Henry and Bill, clarify their dilemma and get to know more about the nature of the She-Wolf. She is smart because of her familiarity with the human world. This allows her to steal their food and even slaughter their dogs. Bill wants to try to kill the Redford She-Wolf, but Henry is not so sure because they have limited ammunition. I think at this point they have three bullets, right? And when push comes to shove, you need those bullets to, to hunt, right? So that's, it's a source of food for them and it's a source of power. If they waste it trying to kill dogs, they'll probably miss, lose their bullets and be in even a tougher spot. So there's this question, well, should they try to kill the she-wolf or should they try to get away? But getting away is almost impossible because the wolves can track them or the, the wolves can track them and pretty much attack them at, at will at night. Chapter three, the hunger cry. And this is actually a reference to the final line of the first part where um, after one of the men is saved, you still hear this, this hunger cry from the wolves out in the wild. It's a very ominous sound. We're introduced to another wolf here named, named um, it's One Eye. One Eye will be an important character, especially in part two. He'll eventually be the mate of the she-wolf. And with their dogs dead, Henry and Bill fear that they'll be the next to be killed by the wolves. In fact, Bill is killed, and this leaves Henry alone. And he struggles to build a fire, and we're reminded of the story to kill to build a fire, which I'll look at in a future episode. Through luck, Henry survives and is found by other gold miners. He eventually, he leaves this world of scarcity and enters the realm of civilization and abundance. And we see how thin this line between nature and civilization is. He's, he thinks he's going to die. He's trying to make it to the camp. And he, I think he passes out and he assumes he's going to die. But he wakes up and he's, he's with other men. Right? There's a very thin line between this two. And... You know, it shows how precarious uh, survival could be in, in the Yukon. And, and I think that's the same theme you get into Build a Fire, right? It's just like one mistake or um, one error or just a little bit of bad luck and, and you're toast. And there's no winner or loser in this part of the novel. It's just merely about survival and, and who can make it to the, to the end of the chapter almost. And in this case, it's Henry. And then in the final page, we get this this hunger cry it's kind of a nice moment his eyes fluttered and went shut his chin fell forward on his chest and even as they eased him down upon the blanket his snores were rising on the frosty air but there was another sound far and faint it was in the remote distance the cry of the hungry wolf pack as it took the, tra the trail of another meat than the man it had just missed okay so that's part one of of white fang it's pretty short it's actually from the human's point of view uh, which is in a, it almost works like a short story, and I think you could read this part one of White Fang just as uh, as a short story. But at this point, Henry passes from the narrative, and and we shift in part two to the point of view of the wolves. Part two is called Born of the Wild, and it's about the birth of of White Fang, but it's also about the cycle of scarcity and plenty. 
The violence in part two of the novel is really in two parts. The first is the wolves achieving temporarily prosperity, what we could call a post-scarcity situation through killing a, a large animal, which allows them to feed themselves uh, to their full. And this also leads to the breakdown of the pack. So we saw how uh, solidarity comes out of desperation and need and want. And this is almost the inverse of what you see happening in like the people of the abyss where, where London talks about the people of the East End. And then he looks at them and he wonders why they don't cooperate more, why they, they don't rise up. And he's kind of baffled by that. And because you see animals doing that, at least in the story, it's animals doing that. But um, later famine returns. It's never permanent, right? The conquest of, of poverty and scarcity is never permanent for in, in the animal world. The famine returns and now the smaller pack, which is made up really of the she-wolf and one eye and the pups, they struggle with nature for a meager subsistence. Other acts of violence are worked out between the wolves as they struggle for access to the she-wolf and the right to reproduce, and the winner of that is one eye. We're reminded that in these desperate circumstances, every basic animal need demands some violence. Um, either not violence on nature, on other animal life, or on each other. Hunger often deprived them of these kind of base instincts. Quote, had there been food, lovemaking and fighting would have gone on apace, and the pack formation would have been, would have been broke up. But the situation of the pack was desperate. It was lean with long-standing hunger. Now, I'm reminded here of, of the debate over early human beings. And so there's, there's kind of this debate between people like Steven Pinker on one side who say there's been moral progress. So he's a philosopher who emphasizes moral progress. And he even, he even takes for, you know, the, the 20th century violence, World War I, World War II, ethnic cleansing, all that that horrible history of the 20th century and says, yeah, but prehistoric man was worse, right? You were more likely to die a violent, violent death in Paleolithic times and in Neolithic times than in the modern world. And this has really been challenged by people who, who want to preserve indigenous cultures like Survival International and for scholars like Christopher Ryan, whose book Sex at Dawn, I, I can't recommend enough. Um, we wrote it with his wife, Casilla Jetha, too. But um, he's the main voice you'll see on media presentations of, of the work. This book, Sex at Dawn, also kind of presents the more Rousseauian or optimistic view of Paleolithic life. You know, that it's much more cooperative. It wasn't that violent. You know, there was no really need to fight over things, you know, because there was kind of prosperity. And some world history textbooks I've read talk about like the Paleolithic kind of post-scarcity situation that there was, you know, hunter-gatherers had more than enough to live off of. So there really wasn't the need for property, land ownership, paternity certainty, so you can pass on your name and your property to your children. All the things that come out of a society of scarcity didn't really apply in the Paleolithic, they would say. But the essence of this debate is over the violence inherent in humanity. For Ryan, and for people like him and for Survival International, we're essentially cooperative and egalitarian, and that's our, our natural state. We're driven to violence as a result of the state, as a result of hierarchies, and as a result of cultural traditions that enforce division and conflict. Scarcity is therefore only a byproduct of civilization. 
But for Pinker, Steve Pinker, prehistoric humans were violent by nature, and it's kind of rooted in our evolution. And it's only through a long process of civilization that humans have grown more peaceful. Um, now, of course, London didn't know about this debate, and, and I'm reading too much into, into London. He may have agreed a lot more with Pinker, actually, but I, I think he also doesn't disagree that civilization itself is inherently violent. It's just the question of where does that violence come from? And as we saw in Call of the Wild, the violence of nature is almost trumped by the violence in civilization, right? It's Yeah, nature, you have this the killing of the dogs and the eating of the dogs and, you know, even the attacking of humans by the wolf pack. You have all that stuff. And there's these struggles later on against between the lynx and the and one eye and, and the she wolf. You have all that, but it would, you know, it's humans that create the club, right? Or will enslave people for labor. That's a very different thing. And in the wolf pack, yeah, you need a lot of people working together to achieve something, you can almost call it labor if you wanted, the cooperation of the pack to hunt, to hunt. But it's it's not through violence, it's through solidarity that it comes. But whatever the cause of the scarcity, whether it's, it's through nature or through civilization, and I think London sees both as causes of scarcity, it does seem that violence is a typical response to that. You know, you need to eat right and you're going to get it somehow you know even a vegetarian on a desert island will you know eat meat when push comes to shove the solution to violence is ending scarcity and we see it with the wolf pack that when they finally do have meat they can enjoy other things of life like family formation and, and mating and in a world as productive and prosperous as our own and even the one that jack london lived in scarcity must be imposed now that's me speaking, not so much London, but I think that's one conclusion we can draw. So the second plot in the in the second half documents the death of one eye in a battle with a lynx, and then the survival of the she-wolf and the one surviving member of the litter, uh, who will become White Fang, and they eventually, you know, achieve victory over this lynx. So this, this part is broken up into um, five chapters. The first one is called The Battle of the Fangs. So this is about the wolf pack um, and the formation of a new wolf pack containing she-wolf and one-ear and their struggle against famine. The, big, the larger pack that was attacking the humans in the first part uh, finally comes across and kills a bull. And this gives them a surplus of meat. And then the pack breaks up. And over time, the pack shrivels down to just one eye and the she-wolf. For, for a while, there's a precocious three-year-old who kind of sticks around. And this three-year-old has designs on the she-wolf, wants to mate with her. But eventually, he's chased off by one eye in the Battle of the Fangs. And this is where the name of the chapter uh, comes from. So you have one eye and this precocious three-year-old fighting. Meanwhile, the she-wolf just sort of watches and, and sits down and, and waits to see the result of it. Her indifference to the fight is, is rather fascinating. Anyways, uh, chapter two. Chapter two is the lair. So now we have a pack really just made up of one eye and the she-wolf. They travel and hunt and eventually they settle into a, a small cave, into a lair. 
and they establish this as the base from which they'll raise their young, and they meet their mortal enemy, a lynx. And these two fight over a porcupine. Um, so the de I think the details of it is actually the lynx kills the porcupine, but then then one eye get, is able to kind of chase off the lynx and get the, the meat. One eye emerges victorious in getting the food. And he also hunts these small birds, these ptarmigans. And apparently these are a very common bird in the in the Yukon, but they're not a meal, right? They're really kind of kind of small. So when he's eating, so it's like White Fang when he's young hunts tar ptarmigans, and when the wolves are desperate, they'll they'll hunt these ptarmigans. The she wolf gives birth to a litter of five pups. So White Fang has four brothers and sisters. Um, there's not much to say about these this pack except the 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 forty five young except for White Fang because the rest all die of starvation. Um, and here we see the cycle of scarcity, and there's always victims of of these periods of scarcity. Whether the the animals that one eye and the she wolf have to hunt, or the 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 pups themselves. In chapter three, the gray cub. Now. The, the, the youth of the cub who will become White Fang is shaped by these cycles of hunger and prosperity. In a sense, the gray cub is the strongest of the five, and that's why he's able to survive. But at the same time, he's entirely dependent on what his father and mother can bring. So really, his struggle is enduring these periods of, of starvation. The adult wolves know that time is hard. And London writes about their, their increasing uh, desperation. Like most creatures of the wild, he had experienced famine. There came a time when not only did the meat supply cease, but the milk no longer came from his mother's breast. At first, the cubs whimpered and cried, but for the most part, they slept. It was not long before they were reduced to the coma of hunger. There were no more squats, spats, and squabbles, no more tiny rages nor attempts at growling. While the adventure turned toward the far white wall ceased altogether, the cubs slept while the life that was in them flickered and died down. One eye was desperate. He ranged far and wide and slept but little in the lair that had now become as cheerless and miserable. The she-wolf, too, left her litter and went out in search of meat. And in the first time after the birth of the cubs, one eye had journeyed several times back to the Indian camp and robbed the rabbit snares. But with the melting of the snow and the opening of the streams, the Indian camp had moved away, and that source of supply was close to him. End quote. So we have another example here of the wolves preying on the relative prosperity of, an, of a neighboring group, in this case, the, the Indians. But really what I felt when I looked at this section again is just the passivity of, of starvation, especially of these, these helpless youth. Um, the gray cub is not able to really hunt for himself yet, so he's just um, kind of existing. And around him, his brothers and sisters are, are dying off. Where am I? Um, so at the end of this chapter, it is clear that One Eye has died. He stops coming to the lair. We'll later learn that One Eye was killed by the lynx, um, but and London foreshadows a future time when the she wolf must struggle against her enemy, the lynx. But uh, basically, all the survival of the pack now rests fully on the she wolf's soldiers' so shoulders. So chapter four, the wall of the world. So the gray cub siblings have all died due to starvation. 
Um, he grows up, he matures, he begins to learn to hunt, and he begins to be able to care for himself a little bit more. He also begins to venture out into the, the out of the lair. And his first kill is a ptarmigan. It's a small bird. However, when he tries to take on a weasel, he's almost killed, but he's saved by the she-wolf, who comes in a nick of time to save his life. So nearly the entire litter has, has died. Just by just by a little bit of luck, is that she will be able to save her one remaining um, offspring. And then in chapter five is called the Law of Meat. This is more uh, London being philosophical, which he's apt to do from time to time. And in this chapter, the she will finally fights and kills the lynx, but at a heavy cost. She's greatly injured, but this helps to ensure the survival of her pup. So the first step in kind of this conflict with the lynx is. The she-wolf breaks a famine by stealing one of the lynx's kittens. And, and this is only the first um, battle. Uh, later on, there's a, this big fight to the death um, in which the lynx was finally killed. But the lesson of all this that White Fang learns is, is this law of meat. And I'll just read this passage. This is, this is as I said, where, where uh, London gets a little philosophical. He began to accompany his mother on the meat trail, and he saw much of the killing of meat and began to play his part in it. And in his own dim way, he learned the law of meat. There were two kinds of life, his own kind and the other kind. His own kind included his mother and himself. The other kind included all live, live things that moved. But the other kind was divided. One portion was his own, was, was what his own kind killed and ate. The portion, that portion was composed of non-killers and small killers. The other portion killed and ate his own kind, or was killed and eaten by his own kind. And out of their classification arose the law. The aim of life was meat. Life itself was meat. Life lived on life. There were the eaters and the eaten. The law was eat or be eaten. He did not formulate the law in clear, set terms, and moralize about, uh, moralize about it. He did not even think about the law, but merely lived the law without thinking about it at all. He saw the law operating around him on every side. He had eaten the ptarmigan chick. The hawk had eaten the ptarmigan mother. The hawk would have eaten him. Later, when he had grown more affordable, he wanted to eat the hawk. He had eaten the lynx kitten. The lynx mother would have eaten him had she not been killed and eaten. And so it went. The law was about living about him and all li li live things. And he himself was part and parcel of the law. He was a killer. His only food was meat. Live meat that ran away swiftly before him or flew in the air or climbed trees or hid in the ground or faced him and fought with him or turned the tables and ran after him. So that's that's the law of meat. So this brings us to part three, the gods of the wild. And here we see scarcity and violence within civilization. Right? We're not yet to a post-scarcity situation because this, this is set with the wolves, the she-wolf and, and white fang encountering a group of Indians, hunters. And they're also facing cycles of, of scarcity. So it, it's very much like part two in that hunger comes and goes, but it's in the context of civilization. But the violence is, is amped up, actually, and it becomes much more arbitrary and sometimes more, more vicious. Now, as we get into part three, we, we do see a little bit of Jay London's racism. Now, his racism is very complicated. And I, I'm reading a book about this now called uh, Jack London's Racial Lives. 
by Gene Reisman. I don't know. It's probably eight, nine years old. Um, but and I've, I've had it for a while, and I, and I must have read it years ago. But it's a really great kind of intellectual biography of, of Jack London. And the point of the author is, you know, this about this really complicated relationship Jack London has to to race. Because on the one hand, he's often identified as a racist and a you know, social Darwinist, and he has a lot of not flattering portrayals of non-whites. But at the second time, in the second hand, a lot of his short stories, in particular, are very critical of of colonialism, and they prevent sympathetic portrayals of of non-whites. But you know, so it's it's sometimes hard to place his racial identity, and the book explores explores that in the context of his life and his work. So I really do recommend that book. Uh, it's called Jack London's Racial Lives, a critical biography by, by Gene Campbell Reisman. Um, but here we see this, the, a hint of, of, of racism in that he calls the Indians the gods of the wild, and he calls the Americans the superior gods. Right? Now this is all from the point of view of, of White Fang, and it, it's, it really has a lot to do with technology. You know, because White Fang will... For, for, for the Indians, the technology that imp so impresses White Fang is like the ability to use a club or something or fire, that kind of stuff. But the Euro-Americans have much more advanced technology that impresses them. So that's why they get called the superior gods. So I'm not sure it's entirely a racial thing, but uh, it's, is, this distinction is made in the latter half of the novel. Now, White Fang becomes domesticated over the course of this part of the novel. It's almost a religious process in coming to acceptance of the dominate by of the domination by the gods right in this section we immediately learn that she wolf kish was previously domesticated and was owned by um one of these indians was previously domesticated but during a famine uh, went free and joined the wolf pack white fang is the name he is the name the gray cub acquires at this point and he learns the lessons that humans are lawmakers. But this law does not eliminate violence. In fact, it in some sense worsen it, uh, worsens it. The reasons these humans are lawmakers is because they can control nature. They have this power to control nature. There's a moment where he's just amazed at this ability to kind of project violence with a club, right? Something a, a, a wolf can't do and never saw for them. Violence was through the, like, the fang, right? Claw. But... You know, now this ability to use a club is, is a masterful technology from the point of view of, of White Fang. His life is no less tormented by violence and in the wild. Particularly, he faces it with, through a comp competitor dog, Lip Lip, who torments him. He also learns to fear technology, and he learns that's a misblessing. At one point, he burns his mouth, and he also feels the, the, the wrong end of the stick. The human's lawmaking also lead to the breaking up of the family as Kitch is sold to someone else and, and she goes off. And at the end of this part three, he actually re-meets his mother, Kitch, who just barks, like growls at him, not barks, growls at him. And so it doesn't even seem to recognize him. She started her own new litter. While the human's laws sometimes protect White Fang, he's at the same time often the victim of the law, which is always enforced with the club. So we're reminded here of the law of club and fang from the Call of the Wild. But it's also in this section that White Fang chooses to stay with the humans, in part because he has nowhere else to go. He really lost his, his pack. The last member of his wolf pack was his mother. 
and he's lost that. So he he begins the process of assimilating into human society. Begins the process of domesticization. So chapter one is called The Makers of Fire. In, in this chapter, the she-wolf and the growing cub encounter a group of Indians and begins this process of entering civilization. The Indians know the she-wolf, whose name was Kish. She was owned by Grey Beaver, but fled during some hard times. So again, the cycle of famine and surplus is driving much of this novel. Keech's child gets the name White Fang. Child, stronger. Keech's offspring, pup, it gets the name White Fang by the Indians. He encounters other dogs, and White Fang is impressed with the capacity of men to transform the world around them with tools and to inflict violence. White Fang is in awe of, of these humans. Quote, this, White Fang looked on with wondering eyes. The superiority of the man-animals increased with every moment. There was a mastery over all those sharp-fanged dogs. It breathed of power, but greater than that to the wolf cub was their mastery over things not alive, their capacity to communicate motion to unmoving things, their capacity to change the very face of the world. It was this last that especially affected him. The elevation of frames of poles caught his eye, yet this in itself was not so remarkable, being done with the same creatures that flung sticks and stones to great distances. But when the frames of the poles were made into teepees, being covered with cloth and skins, White Fang was astonished. It was the colossal bulk of them that oppressed him. They rose around him on every side, like some monstrous, quick-growing form of life. They occupied nearly the whole circumference of this field of vision. He was afraid of them. So this loyalty he builds up for these, uh, these humans is rooted in fear and astonishment and awe. That's why they're called gods. So chapter two of part three is called The Bondage, and Keech and White Fang begin to serve the human gods. Uh, White Fang is constantly abused by a dog named Lip Lip, but worse was the violence that Grey Beaver inflicts on the wolves. The lesson here is that despite entering into a quote-unquote civilization, the violence is just under the surface and even more vicious and arbitrary than the scarcity we see in nature. He wants freedom, and th th this chapter ends with him actually pining for Kish and wanting to have his freedom, but at the same time, he can't really break himself free from these quote-unquote gods. In chapter 3, is called The Outcast, and here we have uh, bad bad, just these bad conditions begin to make White Fang more and more of a brute. And here we have call-outs call to call-outs to Call of the Wild, where the bad conditions on the trail and in the dog pack make Buck violent and brutish and eventually having to assert his domination over over one of the other dogs what matters in this world is power and the ability to inflict pain on others and power is the basis of this hierarchy and he also talks about the this there's also this idea that the the gods are those that can manipulate nature But it seems no amount of manipulating nature and improving life and, and overcoming scarcity can get rid of this baseline violence in the society. Now, we know from Call of the Wild that it's exploitation that is the root cause of all this. But it's not something that White Fang is really aware of, of yet, and he won't be aware of that till, till much later in the novel. Chapter 4, The Trail of the Gods. 
In this chapter, White Fang attempts to escape by staying behind when the camp moves on, but he eventually finds that his bondage makes him makes made him too weak to overcome nature. He's actually incapacitated, right? And all of us in civilization are in this state of, of incapacitation, incapacitation in a way, right? There's a lot of skills we would know if if we were, you know, work. You know, those of us who don't work on farms or live on farms, for instance, there's a lot we can't do. People who maybe have that work can do more. People who have to survive on their own in nature have all kinds of skills that allow them to survive. We have skills with computers and stuff that would be useless in nature. And White Fang's kind of in that situation. He's he's kind of been weakened um, by kind of the relatively cushy life of, of living with the Indians. So he eventually has to go back on the trail with Grey Beaver and the others. He's just sort of been trained to not be strong enough to, to survive on his own. This is the first step, maybe, of, dom of becoming domestic. Chapter 5 is called The Covenant. Uh, in this chapter, White Fang is well on his way to becoming a dog and accepting the hierarchy of the human world and the hierarchy among the dogs. We meet Grey Beaver's son, Mitsa, and he becomes an important figure. So in the same way that kind of Keech gives lessons to White Fang in his youth, Grey Beaver is passing on messages to to Mitsan on how to run the animals, how to manipulate nature, how to be a god in his own right. Throughout this chapter, we see a mixture of hierarchy and solidarity and how these two things are often confused. So in the first part, you have this wolf pack coming together to overcome the famine. And yeah, the she-wolf is sort of a leader of that pack. She's, you know, because she has the knowledge and the skill to capture these, these dogs. But it's a much more egalitarian situation. Right. What is the situation in the Indian tent? Well, it's suggested here. This is on page 184 of my version. Mitsa resembled his father, much of whose gray wisdom he possessed. In the past, he had observed Lip Lip's persecution of White Fang. But at the time, Lip Lip was another man's dog, and Mitsa had never dared more than shy an occasional stone at him. But now Lip Lip was his dog, and he proceeded to wreak his vengeance upon him by putting him at the end of the longest rope. This made Lip Lip the leader, and was apparently an honor. But in reality, it took away from him all honor. Instead of being a bully and a master of the pack, he found himself hated and persecuted by the pack. So the point here, it seems to me, is the leadership creates these breaks down sol solidarity hierarchy breaks down solidarity right lip lip can't be equal with the other dogs because he's been lifted up as the head so he can only be a tyrant now white fang ends up with a kind of a position of authority himself he doesn't become the head of the of the team but he's you know he's he's kind of a leader in his own right because of his his skills and his strengths and even he becomes a tyrant. He says, he was a monstrous tyrant. His mastery was rigid as steel. He oppressed the weak with vengeance. Not for nothing had he been exposed to the pitiless struggle for life in the days of his cubhood, when his mother and he, alone and unaided, held their own and survived in the ferocious environment of the wild. And not for nothing had he learned to walk softly when superior strength went by. He oppressed the weak, but he respected the strong. In the course of the long journey with Grey Beaver, he walked softly indeed amongst the full-grown dogs in the camps of the strange man-animals they encountered. So as this chapter concludes, um, White Fang is serving out of respect and fear of the gods and not out of love. 
right? But that's the case with all these hierarchical relationships within the, the dog teams themselves. White Fang, you know, he's got a little bit of authority, but he's a tyrant. And Lip Lip is the head, but he's completely isolated from the other dogs. So it's all these hierarchical relationships, all based on violence or the threat of violence and tyranny. So it's, it's not a very happy situation. And in chapter six, we get famine. The famine is the name of the chapter. So famine has returned uh, to, to the story. And here's the famine. Now, suffering existed within human civilization, but this is the first time scarcity has re-entered the situation. So in this chapter, White Fang finds his mother and finds that she has a new litter and she just growls at him, forcing White Fang away. This is after three years with the Indians, a brutal famine has hit them. They're so desperate that at one point they have to eat their own shoes. So it's a pretty horrible um, famine. White Fang finds salvation in this famine through a bit of individualism. He actually has to go out into the wild and hunt, return to his earlier instincts. And at one point he meets a wolf and instead of letting him lead White Fang to a wolf pack, which is a choice, it seems he has. He could join the wolf pack and do what the wolves in the early, do what Keech did, actually. It's actually Keech's choice. Um, it, it's, it happens before the events of the novel begin, but she, during a famine, left and joined a wolf pack. White Fang could have done that, but instead he eats the wolf. He kills and eats the wolf. So in this climax of part three, White Fang... Uh, kills Lip Lip, his longtime enemy. And this parallels both like Buck's conquest over Spitz, but also parallels the end of part two of this own novel where Keech kills the Lynx and in fact gets rid of a long-term enemy. But I think the most important thing at the end of, of part three is that is that White Fang chooses not to make the decision that Keech makes to go to the wild and, and join the wolf pack. Instead, he stays with Grey Beaver and stays... Um, with uh, stays in civilization. And that will be a fateful decision that will define the rest of White Fang's life. So that does it for the first half of, of White Fang. Um, we'll look at the last two parts um, and see what happens to White Fang as he integrates more and more into human culture and becomes a domesticated dog. So thank you so much for listening. If you have any comments on this novel, if you've read it and you have thoughts, if, if you see themes that I'm not emphasizing here, I'm focusing on scarcity and violence, but uh, maybe there's certainly other ways to read this, this novel. If you have thoughts about it, please write me at 100pagescast at gmail.com or just leave a comment. But thanks uh, again for listening. Parmi la gagne, ça écoutait bien de laisser sa femme Dispensant dehors du chor Pour gifter un doux regard Mais tout d'un coup, des pieds y partent Il n'a pas pu se rendre au clandestin. Il y en avait un autre parmi eux Qui a passé pour un quiqueux Comme il était pas habile Pour prendre les chars à full steam Tombant pleine face sur la traque Il n'a pas pu se rendre au clandestin.